What a joy it is to sing with you and to be here with you this morning. Why don't we start our time with a word of prayer, turn our hearts to the scriptures. Lord God, what a joy it is to be your people, to come together for the sake of worship and to gather under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished in us. We are here as a testimony of your goodness and a testimony of your grace. As we've studied this week, the, the, the blessings of the church and the gift of the church, God, we ask that you would help us to take what we've heard and to put it into action, that we would live as the church, and that you would use our time this morning in the, the study of the truth to, to prick our hearts and to cause our feet to walk more faithfully for you, to live godly lives committed to you, your truth, and your people. We ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, it is a joy for me to be here with you, uh, to see a lot of familiar faces, as well as some new faces. Uh, if we haven't met, I'd love to have the opportunity to meet you after our time, so please don't be shy. Come by and say hello. But this morning, uh, I've been given the topic of your role in the growth of your local church. So your role in the growth of your local church. This is intended to be more of a topical study, so we will be in several texts rather than one single text. And really think about this breakout session as a chance to really apply and digest all the wonderful truths that we've been hearing from the pulpit throughout the conference. And so this is intended to be very practical and challenging for each of us as we think about how do we live out the things that have been taught to us about Christ's church. You know, the term church growth is a phrase that's ardently avoided by many Christians who align with a more reformed understanding of the scriptures as we do. And the reason for that is not without warrant. Because unfortunately, broader evangelicalism has seized on this idea of church growth and in recent decades has sought to get people inside the walls of the church almost by any means necessary. Churches have given away things like TVs and video game stations. They've invited famous celebrities who claim to be Christians and put them on stage. They, they've changed their style of music and their style of preaching, even their style of dress, all under the banner of let's get as many bodies in the four walls of the church as possible and we'll consider that to be church growth. Thankfully, many Christians have begun to see the bankruptcy of that approach and the unbiblical nature of that approach and, of course, when it comes to that philosophy of church growth, we should all run in the opposite direction. But as often happens, if we aren't careful, we can then be guilty of reacting so harshly to that false philosophy of church growth that we look at any mention of church growth with an eye of suspicion. Like, what is this person going to tell me talking about church growth? The problem with that, of course, is that that kind of thinking misrepresents the Scripture on the other side of the issue. And to adopt an aversion to any legitimate discussion of church growth is to fall into the opposite ditch. And either of those reactions puts you in the ditch. And we don't want to live in the ditch. We want to walk on the road following the Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. In fact, if, if the idea of church growth is, is something you look at with suspicion, just Remember that Jesus Christ himself has committed himself to church growth. This is Matthew 16, 
beginning in verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, that is Peter's confession of Jesus as Lord, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I believe if if Jesus Christ has committed himself to the growth of his church, then we as Christians also ought to commit ourselves to the pursuit of the growth of Christ's church. But we might be tempted to say, well, that makes sense, that, that Jesus would be committed to the growth of the church. After all, it is his church, and, and after all, God is sovereign over salvation, and so he's going to save who he's going to save. So, of course, Jesus is, to, is concerned about church growth, but what does that have to do with me? What is, what is God's role for me? Well, the understanding of, of, of the salvation is important for us because in this topic of election, we can often get confused and think that, well, if, if God is sovereign over salvation, then I really don't have any part in that. Understand, the scriptures teach that God is, uh, for certain, sovereign over salvation, and he has ordained in eternity past those he will save. And yet, at the same time, he has ordained the means by which he will accomplish his eternal decree. How is it that he will save those people? that he has set his love on in eternity past. And we're going to talk about those means, because the means by which he will save his people is through the gospel, and through his people sharing that gospel and proclaiming that gospel. So we'll look at that in the scriptures, and we're going to frame this around two crucial questions. The first question is, how does Christ grow his church? And the second question I'll give to you ahead of time is, how do Christians participate? in church growth. So question one, how does Christ grow his church? Question two, how do Christians participate in church growth? So let's look at question number one. How does Christ grow his church? You know, throughout the New Testament, the church is described by several different illustrations. Perhaps the most famous would be the church is the bride of Christ, as we looked at Friday night. Also, the, the Bible says the church is the body of Christ, We also see illustrations of the church as a field and the church as a vine with branches. But there's another illustration in Ephesians chapter 2 that I want us to focus on this morning. And that is the fact that the church is pictured there as a building. Specifically, a a, a spiritual temple. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. Understand in context... The Apostle Paul has just been speaking about this wonderful uh, reality that Jews and Gentiles are brought together through the gospel of Jesus Christ into one body, that the dividing wall has been torn down by Christ. And now he says in verse 19, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built... On the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. 
Now, this passage explains the process by which Christ builds His church through the Spirit's work. In verse 19, we as Gentile believers are now described as being those who are fellow citizens with the saints, with the Jewish saints. We're brought into then the household of God, and Christ has committed Himself to building up this household. But what's interesting here is as it speaks of us as fellow citizens and saints, and then it moves to this illustration of a building, of a temple, it doesn't speak of us as members living inside the house, but as stones built on a foundation that make up the house. We, we're described as physical components of the church itself. That's when we talk all the time about the fact that the church is not a building, uh, but the church is the people. And that's the idea here. People are stones laid on top of a foundation, and that foundation is Christ, the cornerstone, and he also explains it consists of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles and the prophets laid down the, the instruction, the inspired words of Scripture, and because of that, they, their ministry and work of inspiration by the Holy Spirit that we have here uh, serves us even today. It's the foundation of the church as we stand on the Scriptures. Of course, the person of Christ in his saving work and in the, the inspired words that he taught also serves as, as not only the, the foundation, but the chief cornerstone. The whole church finds its resting place and foundation, even direction, through the work of Christ. But what I want you to see here is how he describes this building as it grows. He says here in verse 21, "...in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit." The illustration then, as I said, pictures us as these stones laid on top of the foundation of Christ, the apostles, and prophets. And understand that at this time, when they built buildings, they didn't use mortar to connect the stones and the bricks. Instead, they did the painstaking work of, of crafting those stones so carefully that they perfectly fit with one another without the use of any mortar in between the stones. That's the description here. He's perfectly and intricately fitting each believer together as we sit together on top of this foundation, which is Christ. But what I want you to see here are the verb tenses used to describe this. I want you to notice particularly the words, is growing, and then the next verb, are being built together. So, is growing and are being built together, both of those are present tense verbs. Present tense. That is, this is an ongoing, continual activity as Christ builds up his church on the foundation of himself and, of course, the inspired scriptures. The church, in the present tense, it says, is growing. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because it explains how the church grows. So that when you, when you think of the, the words of Christ, when he says, I will build my church, it's important that you think of what Christ is thinking of when he says that. And what we see here in this passage is that church growth includes two things. It includes the growth of the church in breadth, that is, new believers being added to the church, but it also includes the growth of the church in depth. 
that is, each of those believers, having been added to the foundation, is to be in a constant, continual state of growing. So don't picture these stones on this foundation as, as beautiful, you know, uh, symmetrical bricks that are all the same size. Instead, picture these stones, and one is a massive stone, and on top of that is maybe one this size, and on top of that is one this size, because each of those stones are described almost as if they're living organisms continually growing. So the church is growing as new stones are added to that foundation, and it's growing as each of the stones it continues to grow in spiritual maturity. So as we think about our role then in the growth of the church, we have to understand that we have a role by God's grace in both the breadth of the growth of the church and the depth of the growth of the church. So having understood how the church grows through this illustration of this, these bricks and stones being added and growing in depth, we're going to turn our attention then to this theme. And it really, here's where we're going to land today. This is what you have to understand. Every Christian must pursue the growth of Christ's church in both breadth and depth. Let me say that again. Every Christian must pursue the growth of Christ's church in both breadth and depth. And to see that, we're going to answer this second question. How do Christians participate in church growth? We're going to boil this down to two primary roles, two overarching roles. And by the time we're through explaining these two roles of our our role in the growth of the church, we will see how it is that God's designed for us to participate in the growth of the church in breadth and the growth of the church in depth. Here's role number one. Role number one is commit to Christ's commission. Commit to Christ's commission. You want to be involved in the growth of the local church, and I hope that you do, then the first thing that you have to understand is that you personally have to commit to Christ's commission. Now, I know that on Friday evening, HB took us through uh, Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. If you didn't hear that, go back and hear that because I'm not going to go into this nearly in the depth that he did. But we do have to turn our attention back for a moment to the Great Commission. You can't talk about our role in the growth of the church and not talk about the Great Commission. So look with me at Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Matthew 28, 19 to 20, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now the first thing we have to understand is that this commission that is given by the Lord Jesus Christ himself applies to every single Christian. If you're a Christian here, this commission is your commission, and it's my commission. This is not a commission unique to the apostles. It's not a commission unique to missionaries and pastors and elders. This is the Christian's commission. If you're a disciple of Jesus, this is your commission. It helps us remember that no matter what other roles you fulfill in this life, husband, wife, child, student, worker, whatever it may be, you're going to have those roles. 
But all of those roles are under the banner of the fact that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are first and foremost a disciple of Jesus Christ, and this is your commission. Regardless of what other commissions you have for just the worldly life we have to live, all of them are under the banner of this commission. With that in mind then, notice that this commission revolves around one central command. Here's the command. Make disciples. Make disciples. Now it's tempting to think that the command here is to go. But the word to go is in fact a participle. It's not an imperative. What that means then is not that we're not to go. What it means is that the going is assumed. It's assumed that we are all always on the go. That we are going. And that we're going with this gospel-centered lens. We live on purpose for the sake of the gospel. But you know, I think a lot of Christians, unfortunately, though they know the Great Commission says, go therefore, live as if it says, sit and wait therefore. Sit and wait. You know, we can all be tempted to sit around our homes praying that, that someone will come to our door begging for us to tell them the gospel. Sometimes that happens. Uh, Mormons come to the door, Jehovah's Witnesses, understand that's them coming for you to share the gospel with them. But that doesn't happen very often. And, and what we have to understand here is that Jesus intended for his people to think of this commission with intentionality. This is a call to evangelism. That we are on the go with intentionality, with planning to share the gospel. That doesn't mean that every Christian has to go out on the street corner every Friday night. Though there's nothing wrong with that if, if you desire to go out and do that. But it does mean this. Every Christian is to be intentionally thinking about how God has situated them in their individual life to be a witness for the gospel. We're not to wait around for opportunities to come knocking at our door, but we are to go. That is, to be on the go for the sake of the gospel. But again, that is the supporting description of the main command, which is to make disciples. And the fact that the command is to make disciples has some very important implications for us as we think about our role in the growth of the church. First of all, understand that evangelism, while important, is only part of the Great Commission. Notice the commission does not say, go and make converts. It doesn't say that. It says, go and make disciples. There's a key difference between those two things. Kittle says in his, his Greek lexicon on this word, Jesus does not seek to impart information, but to awaken commitment to himself. So you're not going out to call people just to, to say that they believe a list of facts and to get them to pray a prayer and then go home and feel really good about yourself. You're going to call people to submit their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, come and follow me. In fact, he says, take up your cross, come and follow me. That's what we're calling people to do. To understand that you are to stop living in your sin, to turn from your sin in repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope of salvation, and then to follow him. That's very different than going out just to make converts to a list of facts. We're calling people to obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. Evangelism is an essential aspect of the Great Commission. But in addition to that, what we see here is a beautiful description of 
our role to, to, to pursue the growth of the church in both breadth through evangelism and depth. The word disciple includes both. You don't become a disciple without first hearing the gospel, repenting and believing the gospel. But then if you become a disciple, it won't stop at just hearing the gospel. It will then bring you into a life in which you are deepening in your maturity and following Christ. That's what we're to do, and we're called to be part of the whole process as a Christian. Your commission is to be a part of the whole process, to to share the good news, but then also with those who are in the church, to be pouring into them, teaching them all things. Notice that. We're to teach them all things that God has commanded of us. Let me just stop here for a moment as we talk about this word disciple because it's important that we, we make sure of something right out of the gate. Are you a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Before we talk about our pursuit of the growth of the church, we have to talk about our own hearts. And so let me just ask you very clearly, have you personally come to understand that you are a sinner that you are separated from God because of your sin, but that God in his mercy and his grace has sent his only son, his perfect son, as a man, the God-man, to live a perfect life that you and I could never live, and then to offer that life as a sacrifice on the cross, and then to rise again from the grave, proving that he is who he said he is, and that the Father has accepted his sacrifice. The Bible says if you will repent of your sins, if you will confess your sins with a heart desiring to turn from them and believe that Jesus Christ is your only hope of salvation, you will be saved. Have you personally come to repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ? Because that's the starting gate. If you yourself are not a disciple, you cannot go out to make disciples. So begin there with a personal evaluation. But turning back to the Great Commission, just quickly, notice the two participles or descriptive words that describe this making disciples. We are to be baptizing them and teaching them. Baptizing them and teaching them all things that, to obey all things that Christ has commanded. This insinuates the need for local churches. This is why it's important to, as you share the gospel, if you're sharing the gospel with somebody out and about, to to then invite them into the church, to come and and be discipled, to to learn how to follow Christ. And and there's an aspect of this commission that connects back to what we started with in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says, I will build my church. Notice at the end of this commission in Matthew 28, he says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That is, Jesus is the ultimate one building his church. He has committed himself to this mission. Therefore, as he sends us out, he goes with us to strengthen us, to equip us, and ultimately to cause our efforts to bear fruit, that we have no power to save a single soul. But he does, and he goes with us. This is our commission. Now, how should that affect our life? How should that affect us? Well, it should cause each of us to be passionate about the growth of Christ church. You should have a passion to see Christ church grow. And that passion will lead you to do two things. One, it will lead you to actively participate in making new disciples through intentional evangelism. 
And secondly, it will cause you to, to actively be a part of the local church in which you are helping those disciples to grow unto maturity in Christ. Both of those things. But let's start with evangelism. Let's just take a minute and test our own hearts in our commitment to the growth of Christ's church in the area of breadth. New stones added to the foundation. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why not? For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul would go on later in Romans 10 to say, How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it's written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. The bottom line is, if we're serious about the Great Commission, then we're going to be serious about sharing the gospel because we understand that it is the gospel that has the power to save, that God has chosen in his sovereign decree that it will be through this message, the preaching of a message, that he will save his people. Therefore, we've got to be busy about that work. So you know, oftentimes when we think about sharing the gospel, our minds turn to faraway places. We think about Africa, and we think about Indonesia, and some other place, maybe Russia, some place that really needs the gospel. But you know, when this great commission began to play itself out in real time in the book of Acts, it didn't start with the outer reaches of the world. It started locally, and then it grew in concentric circles until it reached the outermost parts of the world. This was Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, that was their, their immediate local area, all Judea, a little bit larger, and Samaria, a little bit larger, and even to the remotest part of the earth. That pattern in Acts then is helpful for us because while there are those who are called to go, to the outer reaches of the, the earth. And that may be you, and you ought to consider whether or not that's you. Every single one of us is commanded to share the gospel at least in our local vicinity. And so I want us to start by considering the souls that God has placed in closest proximity to us. Let's start with your house. Are there any lost souls living under your roof? How intentional are you to share the gospel with them? Understand that if you're a stay-at-home mom, you have a gospel ministry to your children. Don't, don't overlook that. Share the gospel with them. Live the gospel with them. Mom and dad, don't underestimate the eternal impact that your gospel witness can have on your children. In fact, let's, let's just do a quick survey. For how many of you... Would you say that the witness of your parents played some role in you coming to faith in Christ? Raise your hands. Mine as well. Look at that. It's not wasted time, parents, when your kids want to talk for 30 minutes at midnight about their heart and their burdens, because that's always when they want to talk. Talk with them and bring them, their little hearts back to the gospel. That's a good work that we get to do under our own roof. But let's take another step outside of our, our four walls, your neighborhood. 
Are you intentionally building gospel relationships with those that God has sovereignly placed in your vicinity? Why do you think that that particular couple or family lives next door to you? Why do you think that one little kid keeps coming over every day and clearing out your fridge? Why has God put that person on your street, on your block, in your neighborhood? It's because they're living next to you, Christian. This is a sovereign, ordained opportunity for you to have gospel impact in people's lives. And God's brought them to you. They live right next door. How intentional have you been to, to find ways to rub elbows with those people for the sake of loving them genuinely and sharing the gospel with them? But the list goes on from there. Your extended family, your associations through work and extracurricular activities, the person next to you on your flight on the airplane, the visitor that you meet in the lobby on Sunday morning. Don't just assume that that visitor is a believer. You may very well have a gospel opportunity on Sunday morning standing at the welcome desk. Understand, we're to go about living our normal lives, but we're to do it with gospel-centered intentionality. Gospel-centered intentionality. You know, many times when it comes to evangelism, we tend to pray for God to give us gospel opportunities. And you ought to pray that. That's a good prayer. Don't stop praying that. But right after you're finished with that prayer, pray, God, also give me a gospel-centered lens through which I see the world. Because I guarantee you that your primary problem and my primary problem in evangelism is not opportunity. The problem is I get so busy with my life and my routine and what I'm planning to do that day that I walk right by all of those opportunities without ever thinking through a gospel lens. So pray not only that God would open doors, but that he would give you eyes and a heart to see those opportunities and then boldness to walk through those opportunities and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. This is our commission. It's the first half of our commission to be committed to evangelism. And through that, in God's timing, by God's grace, he adds one stone after another to the foundation and the church grows. But let's turn our attention now to that second aspect of our commitment to the growth of Christ church not only in its breadth but in its depth and to do this we're going to look now at a second role that we have in this process and that is this commit to Christ church commit to Christ church you know we live in in a, a church culture in the United States that's been so damaged by the seeker friendly movement that Church attendance and involvement has become, for many, a search for self-fulfillment and self-entertainment. And the effects of that kind of thinking have been absolutely detrimental to the church. Because remember, Christ is committed to growing His church not only in breadth, but in depth. And for that reason, each local church must be intentional to follow the pattern for the local church that Christ has given us in Scripture. We don't have to wonder about how the church is supposed to run. It's told to us in the pages of Scripture. Look with me for a moment at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. 
Understand, Jesus has done several things. He's committed himself to the growth of the church. He's called us to be actively involved in the growth of the church. And then thirdly, he's given us the grid for how the church grows. And we see this in Ephesians 4. We're going to read verses 11 to 13. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain. Let's read that again. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now notice that this passage deals with this aspect of the growth of the church in its depth. That is, in its maturity. It begins with God giving gifted men to the church for the sake of equipping the church. Primarily through the means of teaching the word. There are four offices listed here. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. Apostles and prophets refer to those New Testament offices that have ceased, but we still have the gift of their ministry because it's here in inspired scripture. So we still benefit from the ministry of the apostles and prophets as we study the word. Evangelists refer likely to what we would call a missionary. They are those that are taking the truth. They're, they're pressing beyond into the furthest reaches of the earth, planting churches as the gospel goes forth. And then this fourth office, pastor-teacher, is the equivalent of what we would call a pastor or elder in the local church. What I want you to see is the role of those elders is to equip each member of the church to use his or her gifts in the church. That's the role of the leadership, to equip each member of the church to use his or her gifts in the church to serve the church. You know, we get that backwards a lot of times. We think we, we just need to have elders or, or, or pay pastors so they can do all this work that needs to be done. That, that's not the biblical model. We, we, we have pastors and elders so that they can study and teach us the word so that we're equipped to know how to use the gifts we have. And then we use our gifts in the church, and that's how the church is served and built up. This is how the depth of the church grows. This is how you as a stone begin to grow as a stone so that you are maturing in the faith. Now, in order for us to, to do this and to be a part of this, to, to help in the growth of the church in the, sake, uh, in the area of its maturity, we have to begin with a question. Why do I come to church? Just ask yourself that. On a Sunday morning, today, why do I come to church? Do you come to church primarily expecting to receive or primarily expecting to give? Do you come only to receive from others, or do you come prepared to actively use your gifts in the church to serve the body? Now, don't get me wrong. Every time we come to church, we, we receive. We receive as the Word is taught. We receive from the fellowship of everyone else. We receive from, as they serve us with their gifts. Okay, So I'm not saying it's sinful to receive when you come to church. That happens every Sunday. I'm saying what is your mindset? Is your mindset to come and sit and just take in and take in and take out and then, and then leave? Or is it? are you coming intentionally to say, yes, I'm going to receive. That's going to happen. But I'm coming on a mission to be a blessing, to serve, to edify the body through the gifts that God has given to me. That's the mentality that we are to have. 
I want to invite you to think deeply about your personal involvement in this local church or if you attend another faithful church in that local church. So in your local church, I want us to think intentionally about our involvement. To do that, we're going to get really practical. I told you this was going to be the outworking of the things that we're learning. And so I've got here six practical action steps that we can take as we commit ourselves to Christ's church. Some of them are very simple, others are more difficult. But action step number one simply is this, join. Join the church. You know, one telltale sign that you're sitting on the sidelines of the church looking in or coming really to receive rather than to give is an unwillingness to officially commit to that local church through the process of membership. You know, a lot of people push back on the idea of church membership because they say, well, there's, there's no verse in the Bible that says thou shalt go to the membership class or thou shalt fill out the membership form. And that is true. In that sense, there is no verse that says thou shalt have this kind of membership class. But understand that when we think that way, we overlook the fact that in the New Testament, local churches had defined lists of those who were part of those local churches. The leadership knew who the members of that church were and who they, who they weren't. We don't have time to develop a whole uh, teaching here on membership, but I do want you to just pay attention to a couple of things as we think about this issue. Number one, in the Scriptures, elders are commanded to shepherd the flock of God among them. This is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 to 3. It says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God not for sordid gain but with eagerness nor yet as lording it over listen to this those allotted to your charge but proving to be examples to the flock understand that each elder board elder team is tasked with shepherding only the souls that are among them, that is those souls that have been allotted to their charge in a particular local church. Pastor Tom's not the pastor of Southlake. He's the pastor of this church. The elders in this church are not called to equip the believers that live in the larger area. They're called to equip the believers that are here, that have committed themselves to this local church. Now understand, there's liberty given on how a, a membership process plays out. Each local elder team has to decide how are we going to equip and identify those who are, are committing officially to this local church. But having a process is biblical and it's logical. And, and, and we see that even here in Hebrews 13, 17 as we think about the gravity of eldership. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Understand, being an elder is not about wanting a position in a church. It's not about wanting to have power and authority. You don't want to do this unless you are certain that you are, are gifted for the role and called to the role because guess what? You will give an account as an elder. Now, I think it's logical then is for the elders to step back and say, we need to know who the members of this church are, because if I'm going to stand to give an account, I need to know what souls I'm supposed to be shepherding. All of that comes into this understanding of why a church would ask you to make a formal commitment to the church. It makes total sense, especially in an area like ours, where in the Bible Belt, 
literally, there, there may be a hundred churches in a one-mile radius. I mean, you, you pass them constantly. When you leave here to go to lunch, you'll probably pass five churches. And, and, and it's very common for, for, for Christians or professing Christians to just kind of hop from place to place to place. The elders need to know, okay, who, who is here, who's really here, who's really committed to this church so that we can then shepherd them. All that to say, if you haven't joined the church, then you're not in the game, so to speak, when it comes to helping the church grow in its depth. You're on the outside. So officially connect yourself to a healthy local church through whatever process of membership those elders have put into place. Now secondly, another way that we participate, another action step is simply grow. Grow. Before you participate in helping others grow, you need to first be committed yourself to grow. Are you serious about your faith? Are you like one of those stones that's in a continual, it, it's slow, I get it, mine's slow too, but are you in this continual state where six months, a year, two years from now, whatever size stone you were is not the stone you will be because by God's grace you are, are growing and you're actively pursuing that growth. You say, well, how do I do that? Are you reading the word? And not just reading the word, but are, are you taking the word to heart? Are you applying the word to your life? Are you meditating on the scriptures? Do you fight your sin? I mean, do you go to war with your sin? Do you, do you memorize the word and hide it in your heart that you might not sin against the Lord so you can use the word as a sword to fight against the sins of the flesh and the temptations of the world and the enemy? Are you inviting the input of other believers in your life to hold you accountable, to going to those, looking for those in the church who are further along in maturity than you and saying, hey, speak into my life. Tell me what you see. Help me to grow. What do you do to grow in Christ? And how can I come alongside and do the same? If you're saying, you know, I don't, I don't really know where to start and you're a part of this church, uh, do partners. If you haven't done partners, do partners. It's an easy, practical way for you to get connected with another believer and say, I want to grow and to begin to do that. Join a fellowship group. Join a, a Sunday school class. If you're just coming on Sunday morning for the service and leaving, take the next step. There are a lot of options in a church like this to say, you know what, I've got to get deeper. I've got to get connected at a deeper level and just do that. Pick one of those avenues and get involved and grow. But in the spirit of 1 Timothy 4, discipline yourself for the sake of godliness. Thirdly, an action step you can take as we identify areas where we ought to be committed to Christ's church to see it grow in its depth is to serve. Serve. You know, in a church this size, it's really easy to walk in and assume that there really isn't a place for you in the area of service. They got it. It's pretty pretty well-oiled machine. I mean, these chairs were already here when you got here, and the band was already set up. You know, the donuts are, are laid out. The coffee's hot. They don't really need me to serve. Understand, that kind of thinking is absolutely backwards. Because think of it this way. With every new person that comes to a church, that is a new soul that needs to be served and discipled and, and, and fellowshiped with to help to grow in their faith. And so, yes, the more people come, the more hands there are to serve. But on the flip side, the more people that come, the more need there is for service. And so there is a place for you both practically and biblically. What I mean is God has given you, if you're a Christian, 
a spiritual gift. And the primary purpose of that gift is not to run your business. It's not to build anything else than his church. The primary use of your spiritual gift is for his church, which fleshes itself out in the local church. This is 1 Peter 4.10. As each one, listen to that, as each one has received a special gift, this is a spiritual gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And then he gives two categories of giftedness. Large categories, teaching gifts or speaking gifts and service gifts. Verse 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who's speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who's serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This passage removes any excuse that we may have for not serving faithfully in the local church. If you're a Christian, you have either a speaking gift or you have a serving gift or some combination of the two, and your role is to figure that out and begin serving in the church. In fact, the way you figure that out is by serving in the church. So don't get paralyzed. You don't need to go take a survey and figure out your, your spiritual gifts. Just get involved in serving. You know, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the, that the Spirit gives gifts to believers, and, and, and it pictures this idea of the church as a body, that just as if you have a body that's missing a member, the rest of your body's going to suffer for that. You may still be able to limp on and get by, but the rest of your body's going to be affected by the loss of that uh, member. In the same way, if you're here in this church and you're not serving in any way, the, the body's affected by that, that the body could be healthier, it could grow even faster in the ways that God intends if you would commit to use your gift even in the smallest of ways. Again, this ties back into where we started in Ephesians chapter 4, talking about God's plan for the church. Remember in Ephesians 4 verse 12, why does he give leaders to equip the saints? Well, it's for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service. The equipping of the saints, for the work of service. And what's the end result of that? To the building up of the body of Christ. There's nothing magical here. This is God's plan. Teachers teach, the elders equip. The people then take that equipping and they employ it in service and they serve the body with all that they can and that body begins to grow and grow and grow in depth. This is Christ's plan for the church. So very practically, where are you serving right now? Where do you serve? I know many of you serve faithfully, so I'm not saying that no one serves, but I'm just asking you, where, where do you serve? In what ways are you using the gifts that God has given you? And if you don't have an official place to serve in the church and you're a member here, then I encourage you, even today, this afternoon, email whatever staff member you know best or elder you know best and say, hey, you know what, I'm not serving. I, please put me in. I'm ready. Where, where can I serve? It's as simple as that. It just Justin's in the back. I've seen other elders and pastors walk up to one and say, you know what, I'm not serving. Would you help me this week? Can we talk later? Maybe get coffee? I, I want to get plugged in. I want to use my gifts. But if you're a Christian, you have a gift, and it's needed here. Let me just say one more word on this before we move on, and that is that service in the church is not confined to having a title. 
or, or being a part of a specific ministry team. It's good to have ministry teams. It provides organization and places for you to serve. But don't, don't make the mistake of thinking, well, I'm not on that team or I'm not on that team, and so I, you know, I, I can't serve in the church. Don't think about it that way. Service in the church begins with you making a commitment. I'm going to show up to church, prayed up, ready, looking with intentional eyes to be a blessing to somebody. You come to church with a goal of, of finding someone that you can have a real spiritual conversation with for the sake of knowing how you can better encourage them in their faith. And I'm telling you, they, they may not